the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2020 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If you haven't heard the show before, hey, welcome aboard. This show is usually in a couple of parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount we need to pay in taxes. Avoid going through court, that's avoiding probate. And in today's world, it's very important to avoid probate because things are just taking so much longer because of covid as far as elder law is concerned, we're trying to save assets from nursing home bills. And that, that's one of the main concerns of the people in the middle class. They don't want to lose their house to nursing home bills. And later in the show, we're going to be, we're going to be talking to one of the last World War II veterans that I knew that just passed away this past week, Dino Lamia. And we did an interview with him some years ago, and we're going to replay it again in, in homage to Dino and all the World War II veterans that we've lost over the last... Uh, few months. In the meanwhile, getting back to estate planning, we have one of our attorneys with us today, Daniela Campoli. Welcome. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. Okay. Now, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to high school, college, law school? So I grew up in Floral Park, which is on the border of Nassau and Queens. I went to high school in St. Mary's, which is in Manhasset in Nassau County. Undergraduate, I went to St. John's in Queens. And for law school, I went to Pace up in White Plains. All right. So, but you know, you have a question there. What can you, can you ask the question for the audience? Sure. So the question that we have is, my father is in need of home care Medicaid, but I was told that he will not qualify because he owns a home and his income is too high. Do I have any options? Will he ever qualify? Well, you, you know, and this is one of the things I hear, you know, all the time. Now, one of the problems we're having, the, the Medicaid home care rules are changing over the next few months, and they've been constantly pushing the date back. First, I don't even remember the first time it was supposed to be. I think first it was supposed to be July 1st, then it was October 1st, then it was January 1st, and now it's going to be April 1st, and they're talking about switching that back to July 1st. That's when the rules change. So you got to be, if, if you have a relative that you're thinking about applying for home care Medicaid, you probably want to act in, in the near future because the rules will be changing at some point in the future. We don't know when. 
So in this case, dad has too much income and he owns a house, so he can't get, now we're going to say, I assume community or home care Medicaid. Um, so what he can do, he can put his income into what we call a pooled income trust. And a pooled income trust is, you know, a trust where people can qualify for home care Medicaid. In theory, if you have more than $900 a month income, you don't qualify for home care Medicaid. So let's say you have $3,000 a month income. You put roughly $2,000 plus in a pooled income trust, which pays your bills if you own a house, which in this case our gentleman does own a house, then use it to pay the real estate taxes, the insurance, the other you know, bills on the house, and then he can qualify for Medicaid. Now, what about the house? Well, the house by itself is not going to stop you from applying from home care Medicaid, but if you don't put the house in a trust, then after you're gone, Medicaid can put a lien on the house, what they call recovery, clawback, whatever. So we want to put the house in the trust. And right now, if you put put the house in the trust, do a pooled income trust for your income, then you can qualify for Medicaid the next month, home care Medicaid. Now, if you're in a nursing home, there's a 30, there's a, I'm sorry, a five-year look-back period. It's going to be 30 months look-back period when they change the home care Medicaid rules. But Right now, there's a five-year look-back period for nursing home Medicaid. So if father's looking for Medicaid for a nursing home, well, the income doesn't matter because most of the income is going to go to the nursing home. If you stay at home, you keep most of the income to pay your bills. So and then, so I assume it's home care Medicaid that we're talking about. If um, dad's going to a nursing home, well, we got to do something with the house. I would still put it in the trust, but there are other exceptions like if a spouse lives in the house, we would deed the house over to a spouse. If we had a son or daughter living in the house, we might deed the house in a trust for the benefit of that son or daughter who's living in the house. And, or if we have a disabled child, we can deed that house in trust for the disabled child and protect that house from nursing home bills. If we don't have any of those, except, or a brother or sister who lives in the same house, we forget about that a lot because it doesn't really happen as much as you know you might think. So what if we don't have a brother or sister living in the house? We don't have, we're not married. We have no, well, in this case, there is a father. She calls him a father. So if you don't have any children who are disabled, you don't have a child living in the house, what do you do? You still put the house in the trust. Then if dad's going to a nursing home, eventually you might sell the house. And then the nursing home might get 40% of the sale or something like that, which may not sound great, but, um... If you do nothing, you could lose the whole house. And the other thing is you can do an intent to return home. Dad says, I want to go back to my house. They can't force you to sell the house. And then maybe things hold off for a long time. And then in the long run, you're able to, you know, hold on to the houses. We need to avoid probate on the house. That's one of the things that's very important because if you go on Medicaid and if you die and the deed to the house is in your name alone when you die and we have to go to court to sell that house, then Medicaid, Medicaid providers are going to put a lien on the house or on the estate, and you won't be able to sell it without satisfying that lien. Liens are good for, you know, up to 10 years right now, and who knows if they're going to change that in the future. So, you know, he can get home care Medicaid within a few months. But a warning, we're pretty safe. It's not going to change before April 1st. But it may change April 1st. It may change July 1st. If you're thinking about home care, Medicaid, community Medicaid for your loved one, you know, give us a call, get the ball rolling because 
you know, April 1st is not that far away and you got to have everything in place before March 31st. So, uh, if you're thinking about it, not now's the time to do it. You know, the, the time to plan is now it's always better to plan than to not plan. Now, Daniela, where you, how many years here have you been at uh, Connors and Sullivan now? Uh, just about four. Okay. And obviously, since you live in Floral Park, you spend a little bit more time in the Queen's offices than some of the other attorneys. I do. Uh, <laughs> and now, how good is your Italian? You speak Italian. Yes, I speak Italian. So both of my parents were born in Italy. Um, I grew up. That was my first language. So pretty good in Italian. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, do you have any news to announce to the audience? Got some personal news out there? Yeah, so I am expecting I'm due on Easter Sunday. So I will be out for a little while, but I'll be back. (laughs) Okay. When's Easter Sunday this next year? April 17th. April 17th. Yes. So you can can work on some of the tax returns that weekend. (laughs) Yeah, I could do that from home, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, April 15th is a Friday, so. Yeah. Yeah, okay. so it's on yeah Sunday. That's my due date, so hopefully it's not on Easter Sunday, but uh-huh. <laughs> you never know. Right. Um, and what kind of files do you work on here? Um, so I do estate planning. I do some estates. I do some litigation, Medicaid files. So I kind of try and dabble into everything, except taxes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you start learning this. Yeah. <laughs> this I'm going to have to start. Okay. Well, good luck. Uh, thank you. Is there is another question you have on the, the burn or whatever that we should be asking or answering? Yes, actually. So my husband and I were discussing who would be the legal guardian of our child if, God forbid, something happens to the both of us. So and that, that's, that, that's a very good point because a lot of younger people don't do a will because they don't realize that if they have children, they should have a guardian for the child because there's... You know, you don't want chaos. God forbid there's a, a car accident or something happens. You don't want chaos. Um, you want somebody in charge. And, I mean, we went through that an awful lot. It's it's getting to be in the far past now. But September 11th, you had people, young, relatively young people who passed away with children who didn't have anything in place because, you know, let's say a, a 40-year-old man died in September 11th, has children, maybe relatively young children, without anything in place. And that was a mess. Anybody who has a child should think, a child under the age of 18 should think about doing a guardian and appointing somebody to manage the the child's funds, which would be a trustee. So ordinarily you could have two people. So in in some cases you could have one member of the family from, let's say, the husband's side um, managing the assets, a member from the wife's side being the... um, Guardian, the guardian chooses where somebody goes to school, where they live. The trustee invests any money for a child, you know, until they're whatever age. And, and what age would you say most people are picking right now? Right now, it's they're leaning more towards 25, 30. Yeah, it seems like the age keeps going up. I, years ago, it used to be people would say 21. And now I think people are focusing 25, 30. Because maybe there's not quite the amount of, you know, maturity that there used to be in younger people. So there's not a right answer to that, but whatever answer you come up with is better than nothing because here's a problem. You're in a car accident. There's a huge amount of money coming in. And a lot of people say, well, what? Uh, You know, I don't have to worry about trustee because I don't have any money. Well, if a relatively young person dies, there's going to be a lawsuit. 
that young person, I mean, anything can happen. Everything does happen. But it's not likely that a young person's going to die of natural causes, so there'll be a lawsuit, and there'll be money coming in from the lawsuit. And who's going to manage the lawsuit, the money from the lawsuit for the, uh, for the youngster, so to speak? And even somebody who's 17 years of age, do you, do you want somebody 17 years of age to inherit straight out? Well, then it's going to be administered by the court until that child turns 18, and they turn the assets over to the child at 18, which is not necessarily the, the best plan. What do you think is going to be the age for your child? And I know it's hard. Well, it's a boy, so probably leading more towards 30. <laughs> <laughs> if it was a girl, maybe 25. But a boy, probably around 30. You know, I've talked to some doctors here and there, and they say actually the, the time when the you reach maturity is 27, 28. Makes you know, sense. It's, you know, I've heard that fairly recently, so... Um, maybe, maybe it's better to be 30. Who knows? And a lot depends on who you have as a guardian and give some examples. When Let's say you don't have any brothers or sisters on either side. Who would you pick as a guardian? I mean, that's a tough one because grandparents, they're also getting up in age. So are there any cousins? It's a tough one because if you do choose the grandparents for, let's say my parents, for example, then my husband's parents would get offended then there would be a whole big dispute and a whole big conflict. Yeah, and of course, one of the things you can do, you plan in, in relative secrecy. You don't have to tell anybody what your plan is, and hopefully nobody's going to see your will until you change it again when the child is 30 or whatever age you uh, you know eventually decide on. So um, you don't have to spread. You know, some people, I mean, this is a, a problem that happens anyway. Some people, they do a will and they give a copy to everybody. Which, if it's your privacy, not ours, if you want to do that, you can do that. But the problem is, if you start giving wills, copies of your wills to everybody, you change it. Are you getting a copy of the will to everybody that you gave the first copy to? So, I mean, a will should be relatively private. It should be between you and the attorney. Yeah, let's say for the sake of argument, you're doing a will. And, you know, between you and your spouse. And then you got your brother-in-law or sister-in-law or somebody like that as your executor. Maybe you tell them where your will is, but you don't necessarily have to tell them what's in it because, one, you can always change your mind. And you know, and a lot of people, they're writing their wills as if it's going to take effect tomorrow. This will could take effect today. It could take effect 50 years from today. You know, Occasionally we see wills. Somebody did a will in 1965 or something. They didn't update it, and sometimes there's some stupid things there because they've gone— you know, they have their brother or sister as executor of the will, and uh, the brother and sister was 40 years old, you know, 50 years ago, and now they're 90 and they're not able to handle things. And you got 50 year old kids who are not executors. And that's one of the things, you know, people ask, you know, how, how often should I check up my will? Well, you should read your will every once in a while and see if it makes sense. Like I said, a lot of people come in, they say, was well, my will so good, it's so old. And you look at it, yeah, the will's good, but it has your brother as executor. How old's your brother? Oh, he's 85. Well, maybe how old are your kids? Well, they're 40, 45. Maybe you should change it. You know, like this, a will does not expire, but that could be as much of a problem as it can be a benefit. Because in some cases, if, if you have the wrong person as executor, it might be just as bad as not having a will at all. And then if you, you want to give in, come in and get an appointment at Cons and Solomon, discuss your old will, talk about you've never done a will. And, and, you know, just this week we're talking, we did a will for a gentleman 
who was 92 years of age, who was the first will he ever did, and seemed to be very happy about it, um, had a good time. But, you, you know, if you're alive, you still can do a will. It's never too late. As long as you're mentally alert and you can answer some questions, you can do a will. So if you want to come in and schedule an appointment at us, at Connors and Sullivan, you give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. And if you're, you have a relative that speaks Italian, they'd be more comfortable speaking Italian, ask for Daniela to be on an appointment, especially if you live in Middle Village or Bayside, Queens. All right, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We're shifting gears a little bit. Daniela went off, and uh, Nicole Donnelly is taking her place. And, Nicole, again, I mean, I think everybody listening to the show knows who you are, but who are you? I'm a veteran of Connors and Sullivan. I've been here for all of a year, which feels like 100, and I've seen almost 1,000 people because Mr. Connors works me very, very hard. I'm also the Spanish-speaking attorney here. So English or Spanish, whatever your clothes, come see me. I got it covered. Now, again, how does somebody with the last name of Donnelly speak Spanish? I mean, my father would hate this story. But, you know, I come out of my mother's womb and she says, you are mine. I'm going to teach you Spanish. My father says, how am I going to speak to her? She says, worry about that when she goes to school. I speak to my mother for three years. I go to school. All of a sudden, my father meets me and my personality. Now, how come there are a lot of people speak Spanish here, but how come you're the person stuck doing all the interpreting? Because I happen to chase my people down. I like to be involved. It's what makes me part of the veterans crew. I'm involved in almost everything that we do. I see a Spanish last name. I throw myself in there. I need to know. I need to see them. And then we just hit it off. So, you know, that's how I become involved. All right. Well, do you have a question for the... Do I have a question? Or just a comment. I think you had a comment. We have a couple of comments. I see a couple of trends coming in, and I want to know what you think about it, Mr. Connors. We see a lot of people now in their 90s coming in, first time doing a will, and they look like they're in better shape than me. And I want to know what their workout routine is, quite (laughs) frankly, because I feel embarrassed. 
but 90 years old, is it too late to do a will? I get that question all the time. What do you think? No, it's not. If you're still walking, breathing, and you can think, you can do a will, you know, and you don't have to be 100% to do a will. You have to know roughly who your relatives are and what you want to leave and a rough idea of your, the assets you own, but that's about it and that you want to do a will. The main thing is if you want to do a will, you can do a will. Now, do we know who their relatives are? Some of these people, and it's odd to me because obviously I know who all my relatives are in my 30s, but they say to me, yeah, my brother had a couple of kids and I don't really remember their names and I don't talk to them. And I go, I would talk to my brother's kids all the time. How is this possible? But I mean, does that mean they're competent? Are they incompetent? Well, if they what knew their brother on? had a couple of kids and she hasn't spoken to him or he hasn't spoken to him in a few years, that'd be competent. Listen, if you come in and you want to do a will, you're competent. I mean, if you speak in sentences, you want to do a will, you're competent. Now, the, the problem you have is like somebody in the family says, hey, my aunt wants to do a will. And that's where the, we, we got to start talking to aunt and find out that she knows what she's doing. And, you know, the, we got to be wary anytime someone comes in and says, my aunt wants to do a will, so forth and so on, you know. There's a 50-50 shot. They will come in with the end or they won't come in with the end. Right. The end will disappear off the face of the planet. Now she doesn't want to do a will. Another one I'm getting a lot lately, and I wonder about this, is any power of attorney better than no power of attorney? Some people come in and they say, well, well I would say any power of attorney is better than no power of attorney, but still you got to qualify that because a lot of these power of attorneys that you print up over the Internet, they're not as good as a power of attorney as you should have. And is it okay if you printed it up off the internet and you initial that random everywhere, or you initial that random nowhere? Is it a good power of attorney? I would say if you print it off the power of attorney off the internet, it's really probably, it's not good enough to do everything you need to do. Like for the sake of argument, how many times we had a question earlier in the show about a pooled income trust. What do you do with the excess income if your parent wants to apply for Medicaid? Well, you know, a lot of those power of attorneys, in fact, I haven't seen one power of attorney that's just printed off the internet that would allow you to deal with Medicaid on a pooled income trust. So right away, if if you got a parent who wants to apply for Medicaid and they have more than a $900 a month income, those powers of attorney off the internet are, are not going to cut it. The powers of attorney you got in a lot of cases from, you know, general practice or real estate lawyers, a lot of cases those power of attorneys do not cut it. They do not cover everything you need to do. Like the standard power of attorney, let's say you got a husband and wife. Husband has a stroke. He has to go to a nursing home. Wife wants to transfer all the assets over to her name. The standard power of attorney, believe it or not, does not allow you to do that. And sometimes, you know, you can slide through it. That's why, you know, any power of attorney is better than no power of attorney for the most part. Um, I mean, sometimes you can get a power of attorney that you can print up from another state and banks in New York are not going to accept it. And that can be a problem. You know, sometimes... You know, you print off a power of attorney form from Florida, and they're, and believe me, Florida power of attorneys are good. The language is good and everything else, but a New York bank is not going to accept a Florida power of attorney. And you say with me, what's wrong with it? No, the language is great, but New York New York banks don't like to accept powers of attorney. If they find an excuse where they don't have to accept the power of attorney, they will do so. And if you do not, if you're not in accordance with New York state laws. They will reject it. And sometimes we're having cases where, you know, they changed the power of attorney law, I think in July this year, the format for the power of attorney. And banks were saying, you know, oh, you signed the power of attorney before they changed the law. 
this power of attorney is not valid. And we're having this problem all the time. The power of attorney, you know, the law was passed and said we're changing the format of the power of attorney starting, I don't know what it was, let's say July 12th. Um, and then you did a, a power of attorney June 30th. Well, that power of attorney, according to the law, is still good. But some banks, again, they don't want to, you know, banks are not like they used to be where they were customer friendly. Banks right now, it's like they can do anything they can do not to do work and not to, and, and I don't want to, you know, paint a broad brush. But there are a lot of people in a lot of banks, it seems like they don't want to do any work. They don't want to help, you know, the client. They want to keep control of the money in some cases. They don't want money coming out of the bank. And, you know, that's why if you, if you don't, you know, cross your T's, dot your I's, the, the bank may not accept the power of attorney. And I'm, I'm telling you right now, you could, you know, cross your T's and dot your I's, and the bank is going to give you a problem with the power of attorney in some cases. Especially, you know, the, the large commercial banks usually have pretty good luck with, but it's some, some of the small savings and loans. You know, occasionally you have a problem. And even in some cases, you want to do something in a hurry. You want to use the power of attorney in a hurry. And you say, well, we got to send it to our legal department. you got to wait a week later. Well, if the week is, let's say, between November 25th and December 2nd, in that week, you could lose $15,000, in a nursing home bill waiting for the bank to approve a power of attorney. So, you know, come in. We can talk about a power of attorney. And I know it's hard to explain why banks don't want to use power of attorneys, why Medicaid, you know, Medicaid, like we talked about the pooled income trust, Medicaid likes to say, or that again, they don't have to work on the file. Oh, your power of attorney doesn't allow a pooled income trust. We don't have to work on your file. Thank you. Good. I can go home early tonight. You know, it's, it's human nature. And of course, I think too many people using COVID as an excuse not to work hard, which is one of the reasons right now with the courts, they're so backed up because the court clerks are getting paid their salaries and everything else. But things are not being worked as usual. So so is it safe to say that if your power of attorney was done by your union lawyer, you might need a new one? I'd say I would say that is <laughs> definitely a concern because, you know, listen, estate planning is not rocket science. It's not impossible. It's not, you know, but it's a little bit more difficult than... Um, then you might think they're a little, you know, it's a little complicated. It's not overly complicated, but it, if you have good common sense and you know what you're doing, you can handle it. But in some cases, if you're just guessing or just floating around or doing something like that, you make mistakes. Now, another piece of advice, and maybe I shouldn't even bring this up, do not or be very careful what you read on the Internet. Because a lot of the articles that are on the Internet, that you read on the Internet, are written by people who graduate from law school who never had a job in their lives. And I'm not saying some, some of the articles on the Internet are very good. You know, I read them, and I think I'll probably read one or two tonight and take a look at them. And some of the articles on the Internet are, are very good. But at the same time, some of the articles that are written are, are written by law school graduates who are reading the, the dead letter law, don't know how to interpret it in light of practicalities in the real world. And you, you could be, you know, you read something. And, and, of course, a lot of the articles are so general. You know, you could read an article about an irrevocable trust. And, yes, you could have the standard irrevocable trust or whatever that you do in another state and that you can't make any changes to it. But New York state law 
allows you to make changes to an irrevocable trust. And, you know, you read that and say, well, I can't change an irrevocable trust. I don't want to do it. Well, in New York State, you can make changes to an irrevocable trust. You can have what we call a power of appointment on the, on the trust where you can change the beneficiaries of the trust. And, and to be honest with you, in New York, a trust is really not irrevocable. There's so many changes, so many things you can do with an irrevocable trust. You can change almost anything, and that's why some people they you know they they read another article written generally. Uh, it's a magazine article. It's written for all 50 states, and in a lot of states, an irrevocable trust you can't change it. And you know we we had a conference earlier today about dynasty trusts, and that you can't change now. Why anybody would do a dynasty trust, I'm still not sure. We don't allow it in New York. A trust can stay in New York. How long can a trust operate in New York? This is a test. Got to go back to law school. Nobody wants to go back to law school, guys. <laughs> a trust can be around for a life and being plus 21 years. It's called the rule against perpetuities, which drives law students crazy at the bar exam because nobody can understand the rule against perpetuities. But basically, when you set up a trust, when you set up a trust, it can go for a life and being plus 21 years. And that gets a little complicated. And who the life and being is could be a class of people. It doesn't have to be one person. So for the sake of argument, let's say you got 10 grandchildren. You want a vacation home to stay in a trust for as long as possible. And you don't want any of the family members to sell that vacation home because you wanted a place for the grandchildren to meet over the years. So you don't want that vacation home to be sold. So you say that it's you, you want it to be kept as long as possible. Let's say you got 10 grandchildren. You can say the property can't be sold until the last of my 10 grandchildren passes away plus 21 years. So if some of the grandchildren are under 20. This trust is going to easily last 80 years. And then with today's life expectancies, the trust could last, you know, more than 100 years. And we do that, again, if you want to keep assets within the family line. I am not a, a big fan of committing assets for a long period of time because things change. You know, you could think you have a, a great house and everything else, and there's a fire, and you want to do something with the property. You don't want to rebuild it. It's not worth it. The neighborhood changes. The area changes. Um, kids move away, and there are no more kids in New York to enjoy the property in the Hamptons. Um, so I'm not a big fan of that, but it is one thing. And if you do want to keep assets in a trust, really, we can almost do it for a hundred years. And the picture is, is pain at the time of death. So if there's a great grandchild alive, you can say until the survivor of my grandchildren or great grandchildren dies plus 21 years. So if you have a young great grandchild child alive, you know, and they're just born, they have a life expectancy right now of close to 90 years, plus 90 years, plus 21 years. You can keep this trust going for 110 years. And, and if you are interested in that, we can talk it over. I enjoy, you know, going back to law school and trying to figure out how to extend the rule against perpetuities as much as possible. But, again, do not read things off the Internet. Yes, you can read them. Check your sources. And just because somebody wrote something on the Internet does not mean it's gospel. There could be a mistake in there. All right, I think we're going to take a short break. Nicole, thank you for chipping in. You're very welcome. And Doing if you've told our viewers anything, our listeners better yet, anything, it's how customizable a trust is in New York. Very good, if Mr. You ask me, I always say this at every seminar. If you ask me, can I do this in a trust, can I do that in the trust, the answer is yes. 
Do you want to keep the trust open until your dog dies so your dog doesn't have to leave, you know, look for a new house? Yes, we can do that now. Some people say, well, oh, you read here, you can't make it for the pet's lifetime. But yeah, but you make it for 21 years. <laughs> and they're not that many pets except We'll you. work with you here at Connors and Sullivan. Yeah. Whatever you want, we got it. You want to take care of that dog, we'll take care of the dog. In <laughs> fact, Michael, in a couple of weeks, I think we're going to be talking about a new program. But bye to we, right? Yes, absolutely. That came you know. to us courtesy of... Justin, I believe. Yeah. Foster homes for pets. I like that better than the other things that are being proposed. Yeah. All right. Again, we need to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. You'll listen to Ask Lori with me, Mike Connors. The Guild for Exceptional Children, or GEC, has been providing excellent care to children and adults with developmental disabilities since 1958. It is our mission to help build better lives and brighter futures for the people in our care. We serve nearly 1,000 individuals each day and are proud that 90 cents of every dollar is used for actual services. Please visit www.gecbklyn.org or call 718-833-6633 to learn more. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. Welcome back to Ask Lori with me, Mike Connors. We're, we're going to add, we're going to end, maybe on a sad note, maybe not so sad really when you consider everything. But this past week, we lost one of the friends of the show, Dino Lamia. And the sad part is he was just a few days short of his 100th birthday. And I know he was looking forward to it. And, and Dean Alami was one of the last of the World War II veterans that we interviewed the show. So we, we're we going to dig up out of the archives and play the interview we did with Dino a few years ago. And, and again, let him rest in peace. God bless him. He, he was a great patriot, World War II veteran. And, and let's hear his experiences about World War II. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. 
Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. As many of you know, we've been interviewing World War II veterans, and I'm, I'm very happy to have with us right now Dino Lamia, a friend of ours from Bay Ridge, who I think served in World War II. <laughs> yes, I did, sir. Okay, so how are you doing today, Dino? I'm feeling fine, thank you. Okay, so at the, uh, December 7th, 1941, where were you? December 7th, 1941, I was sitting at the kitchen table at my home with my dad, my mom, my older brother, and my younger sister. We were having our Sunday afternoon dinner, and suddenly the radio reports a very startling remark that we have been bombed in Hawaii. We, of course, all of us at the table were totally shocked, unaware of what it all meant at that time, but we soon learned that they really, really caught us at the wrong time or at the right time for them. Where did you, how, how did you get into the service? Of course, I had uh, enrolled in the, uh, in the draft. I was then drafted and went into the service. Uh, I was drafted in uh, March of 42. I reported to Governor's Island was sworn in and was moved out to uh, Camp Wheeler, Texas for six-week infantry training. I then was discharged as a trainee, as as a infantry, and we were left enrolled in a barracks waiting for our deployment. And we later find that we later learned that we were moved up to Camp Gordon, an Air Force base, because we were waiting for more information as to what the Air Force was going to do with required personnel. Now, at the time, that was the Army Air Corps? It was the Army, correct. It was the Army Air Force. And, of course, and when we came up to uh, Camp Gordon, we had to enroll and, and register. And we then, later on, after three or four or five days, we were given questionnaires because we were then told that we might be transferred from infantry basic and from infantry infantry uh, regiment to the Air Force. We later learned that it was the 8th Air Force that we were enrolled in because we had been offered these questionnaires. They were screened and some of us were chosen to move on to the 8th Air Force. And while we were at Several of the bases, and I can't really remember all of them at this point, but uh, we went from three or four different bases, and then finally the 9th Air Force came through, and we were transferred to the 9th Air Force, which was responsible for maintenance and operation of the B-26 Marauder, a twin-engine medium bomber. But we were medium bombers. We were twin-engined. We didn't have four. We were twin-engined planes. And we then continued to develop and improve our operation. Where were you stationed in Europe? The first Air Force base we were involved with was in uh, a town called Chipping Anga, which was... uh, approximately 20 miles southeast of London, which at that time was in real, real bad shape because they had experienced the Blitz for a long time. They experienced their protection from the Blitz with the use of these huge balloons that they were attached to wiring that were set up every single night in order to 
defray the bombing of the planes, and we were naturally responsible for what was required of us there. And then, of course, as time went on and activity began to uh, develop on the continent, we moved out of Chippenango and moved, and we moved over to France. And I think the first first town we came on to, I think, I'm not quite, I don't quite remember, but I remember one town nearby, Chartres, which was a uh, rather large city in the area, but not, not very, not very close to the beach. The beach, of course, was invaded by all of our heavy troops and a sad, sad situation. And that's as best as I can tell you at that time. December 1944, what do you remember? December 1944, I remember that for all intents and purposes, we thought we were really, really on safe ground. And we were. But as we learned later... Adolf Hitler engineered, developed, and prepared, and executed this huge invasion of our troops as a last resort. And when we learned that that took place, and I later learned, and of course it's in it's in army history, that this invasion began on the 16th of December, and he was prepared to do away with us entirely because he had all his forces at this particular battle at the Forest of Ardennes in uh, France and Luxembourg. Eisenhower decided that we had to protect ourselves, and from the what we learned later, we had 600,000 of our troops to protect this invasion of Hitler's. Our casualties numbered... Uh, According to history, close to 40,000 between those killed and those missing in action. And finally, after, well, two or three days, we were unable to defend ourselves because the weather was so bad. Skies were clouded, winds, the air, planes were not able to fly. They were grounded. We were all grounded until approximately the 20th of December. Skies cleared, clouds disappeared, our planes were ready, loaded with ammo, loaded with bombs, the men were briefed, and as soon as we got permission, the men were off to bomb and protect us. And from that minute on, our planes really came down just to reload and have the men briefed first to go and then debriefed again on their return as to the results. Fortunately, after 10 or 12 days later, we finally felt, from our headquarter reports, we finally felt that we were gaining and winning. And on the 28th of, if I recall, the 28th of, December, of January, is when that final that battle finally ended with our victory. It was costly. It was rather embarrassing that we were caught off guard, but we were prepared to win, and we did. And thank God for that. And that was the battle, I think, the most costly, so the second most costly battle 
of the war, aside from the invasion of the troops at the beach at, at Omaha and at uh, Utah. And I'm very, very thankful to say that I'm, I'm home and well and able to discuss it. So the war ended just about 70 years ago. Where were you at the end of the war? At the end of the war, I was on the French-German border in a little town called Aachen in Germany. And I thought that maybe, maybe at this time, I might be called to be sent back home. And hoping that it would happen, it finally did eventually. I was able to uh, move on up from uh, our French area, our French-German area, back up to the uh, back through the continent on the way north. I didn't know really where I was going or what I was going to do, but as we traveled up, we realized that we were getting close to the ports in Holland, and finally we went uh, through to Antwerp, and I came home on a Liberty ship in November of 45. Did you ever think you might have to go to Japan or go to the Pacific? Well, yes, there was. There was some rumor, but there was not only one rumor, there were many rumors. In military, as you might have heard from others, uh, rumors fly quickly and, and rather wildly, too. And we thought possibly that since we were through and did such a great job, and by the way, speaking of a great job, my squadron, at the time of, of and I'm not sure now when exactly it took place, but after the Battle of the Bulge was completed, which uh, w w was around the uh, 28th or 29th of January, President Roosevelt died in April of uh, April of 45. We then later learned that our squadron was awarded the president's unit citation, but I can't be I don't know whether it was President Roosevelt's thought or President Truman's thought, but we were awarded a special president citation because of our activity at the Battle of the Bulge. Now, did you receive any rewards from the French government? Yes, uh, Mike. I, I, I was... Uh, I was honored by the French government and, and received several commendations and certificates and invited at that time back to France for what I did. And I was happy to do it, but I just didn't go back and I wasn't, I was never, I never did return. Where's home? Where did you return to? I returned, I returned to Bay Ridge Avenue, Bay Ridge Avenue, 69th Street between 3rd and 4th. Avenue. I came home, and my brother had graduated from Pennsylvania University of Pennsylvania Dental School, and I learned that while I was in Europe, my brother Mario was shipped out as captain, dental uh, uh, division, and was shipped out to California. And what did you do after the war? After the war, it took me a little while to get to get my feet on the on the ground again. Fortunately, I was able to do that, and I started I started to go to school again. I went back to college, and then I learned that I I just couldn't concentrate, and I went into business, and I've been in business ever since. 
until my retirement of about oh maybe 10 years ago okay <laughs> just for the audience what's what's your age right now right now i'm 93 93 happy years and i will be 94 on december 5th of this year 2015 all right so we invited to the 100th birthday party I am preparing that already, and you are certainly on the list together with your staff. <laughs> and I hope that I can come and shake all of your hands as you're there. We hope so. Enjoying a drink on me. Very good. We look forward to that, and thank you for your service in World War II. Well, Part of the greatest generation, Dino Lamia. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for. Because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized that we love them, there are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. Uh, again, Dean Olamia, rest in peace. God bless him, God bless his family, God bless his daughter. You know, for the care she took care of. He was and, a great, great fellow in our neighborhood. Everybody knew him and everybody loved him. And always prayerful. Yep. Yep. And thankful for the blessings that this country gave him. Positive. Don't give up. No, good very good man. It's so sad all of the you know, the W W two people, you know, um I guess Catholic War Vets is where you met most of them. Yeah. Do you know I met him long before that because he was a real estate broker in the area. Okay. You know, so I knew him from when he was still still working. Right. Which, more than a few years now since he's, you know, since he passed away at almost 100. And I remember the Colonial Club. Yeah. And he would say the prayer each right. time. Right. He's going to be missed. It's less of a generation and our country's losing you know, is losing or lost this generation. And it's really a shame because there's not another ge generation to replace them. 
All right. Well, getting back to business again, if you want to schedule an appointment with us at Connors and Sullivan, you're more than welcome to do it to do your estate planning. Again, you can give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. If you want to ask us a question that you know, you'll be heard on the show or if you want it to be asked privately, you don't want your name to be used, please let us know. But, Michael, where do they email the questions? If you want to email a question to us, you just shoot that over to askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Connors spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S. That's, once again, askmikeconnors at gmail.com. All right, so hopefully we'll be back next week at the same times and places. Uh, you know, God bless America. You know, we just come out of Thanksgiving. We're coming into Christmas. So it's a blessed time of year. But thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.